a one, a two, a you-know-what-to-do. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. But they want to call me Mother Blues. That's all right with me. It don't hurt none. <laughs> Where's the, uh, the horn player? I got a friend. Come on, Libby. You rehearse like everybody else. I'm going to get me a band and make me some records. I know how to play real music, not this jug band shit. You call that playing music? I know what I'm doing. No one will fire me. I don't care. When I got there, they began to stay. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. Levy, the sooner you understand it, and what you say is what my say to count. <laughs> we'll be ready to go in 15 minutes. We'll be ready to go when Madam says we're ready to go, and that's the way it go around here. These records are gonna be hits. Please come home to me. Every colored man in the world got to do his part. I'm gonna tell the white man just what he can do. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. About them songs I give you. They're not the right songs. I don't take them off your hands for you. I got my time coming to me. You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got beat here. Hello, hello, hello. This is Killer Casting, and I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, probably best known for my work on Criminal Minds and the upcoming FX show Reservation Dogs. And today we're not just going to be talking about killer casting. We're going to be talking about extraordinary casting of a film and casting that's being rewarded with two Academy Award nominated performances. But in my opinion, I would give Academy Award nominations to everybody in this ensemble cast to recognize what I think is just astonishing work. And in fact, two of the actors in this ensemble, I've actually cast in other projects. So I'm so proud to see them in this. Um, And I can only be talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I've been wanting to talk about this film for several months now, and now's a really great opportunity because of the nominations of Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman for Academy Awards. But in my opinion, Glenn Turman, Coleman Domingo, and Michael Potts are also uh, right up there. Um, but I can't talk about this alone. As you know, I can't just talk to myself. That would be super boring. So I have my sexy beasts with me, my ever-present companions. Please say hello, beasts. Brian A. Hill saying hello. 
And a big hello from down under from Dean. Great to be here um, discussing this incredible film with two, well, as you say, Lisa, more than two incredible performances. Just mind-boggling. Yeah, so I can't wait to get into it with Dean and Brian, but we can't we can't talk about this out of context. And um, and, and, and let me just be, let me just be real. We're all white, you know, and I didn't think that it was right that I don't have other magnificent minds to put things in context for me and for us and people who've, who've spent their careers studying um, not only black theater, black history, August Wilson, um, whose play this movie was adapted by Ruben Santiago Hudson. So we have two very special guests with us that I'm so excited to have them introduce themselves to you. Why don't you go ahead? Hello, I am Dr. Monica White Mdunu. I am an associate professor of theater at Dartmouth College, where I'm also affiliated with African and African American studies and film and media studies. In addition, I am the founder and executive director of the Craft Institute. And our mission is to is dedicated to curating culturally inclusive ecosystems throughout the world of arts and entertainment. And I'm also a proud member of the August Wilson Society Board. Wow. 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 Thank you so much for being here. And we have another special guest. Yes, I'm uh, Dr. Larry Glasgow. I'm professor of African-American history at the University of Pittsburgh. And really one of my major research fields is Pittsburgh history. So I got interested in August Wilson originally because of his Pittsburgh connections. And it's been a fascinating study on my part. I really have uh, been able to find out so much about him, his early life in Pittsburgh, and it's just a thrill to see his plays and try to place those in the context of who he was and how Pittsburgh helped shape him. Yeah, and I would love to talk to you about these um, these adaptations from the plays onto the screen too. What y'all you know feel about that? I just want to get a quick hit. Uh, so I've seen um, two August Wilson plays on Broadway. I saw Viola Davis in Seven Guitars, um, and we did several uh, August Wilson plays at a theater company, Denver Center Theater Company, where I work. Um, but this is the first adaptation I've seen on screen. And my quick opinion, as you've already heard, is that I found it incredible. I found it an incredible homage to the state to stage play in general, the way it was shot. And I found the performances absolutely astonishing. The physical work, the gestural work, uh, the emotional work, so many things that I'm going to comment upon. So I thought it was astonishing. Um, Bri Bri, what, what did you think? Quick hit on the on the movie. You no, know, uh, The thing that I was first struck by, it, like the, the power of the two performances, Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, and I, even if I didn't know that he was so sick, it would have been a powerhouse performance. But given the fact that he was so far along in it, in the cancer and that he could deliver that kind of performance, especially the monologue talking about the men coming and like the power of that, the act of will that that required, I can't even imagine. I just, I can't. And Viola Davis, I mean, it's like, it looked like the entirety of the time that she's on screen, it's like the humidity is 110%. I, and I, I said this before we got started, like Hollywood has done her a great disservice for so many years because she, especially in this performance, she has 
an equal amount of power to Denzel Washington, who I think is one of the most powerful actors that we've ever had in movies. And for her to finally kind of really be coming into her own the last 10 years or so, I think is more a credit to her talent than to the largesse of any Hollywood producer mm-hmm. or studio. You know, yeah, that's my quick. Yeah, hit. yeah, yeah. And I want to just remind me to get back to that. Get get back to what you mentioned about her uh, past in Hollywood. I mean, her voice. Oh, God oh yeah. Almighty. Fuck. I mean, oh. just oh, we yeah. say the fuck word by the way, you guys. <laughs> we oh, unfortunately yeah. sorry, we are going to be very crude <laughs> and express right. ourselves. Um. Anyway, Dean, what was your what was your hit? Uh, yeah, by the way, folks, it's mostly Lisa that drops the F-bombs in, in, in this uh, pod, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so my take on it was that I came into the film really knowing only uh, the trailer. So I had no knowledge. I hadn't, <laughs> guilty confession, I hadn't seen Chad Bozeman in a film prior to this. So I didn't see Black Panther and I had, had not seen his previous wow. work. Um, and... I remember I watched it on Netflix and I hit pause at one point just to clock what the time was because, and again, this betrays my ignorance of the production, I'm thinking, wow, there's so many internals in this film. You know, you could almost do this as a stage play. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) And and then afterwards doing the research, I found out about, you know, Augustine Wilson or August Wilson and, uh, and his body of work and what an incredible playwright he is. He's won two not one, but two Pulitzers. So it's like, you know, there's a big gap in my knowledge. Um, so yes, two powerhouse performances. And I, I thought it was it was interesting that they were, Levy and Ma are kind of dueling in the film. Uh, and although that, you know, they're not competitive as actors, nonetheless, you've got these two, as you said, these two incredibly radiant performances playing two very strong characters in the film and they're playing off each other. Uh, although, as people have said, although it's called My Rainey's Black Bottom, she really only clocks in at just a few, just over 20 minutes of screen time and the rest of it is given over to um, the rest of the film. But, yeah, just amazing. Blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Monica, what was your reaction to the film? Well, I would have to say, because um, I watched it the the very first day that it was released on Netflix. And having read the play multiple multiple times and having seen um, productions of it, I, was, I wasn't really sure what to expect in terms of what the changes would be and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, I was floored. You know, I was profoundly moved by all of the performances and also very um, impressed with the choices that Ruben Santiago Hudson and George C. Wolfe made in terms of what they chose to keep and what they chose to change. And so um, I think it was just, I think August Wilson would be proud of this work because not only did they capture the essence of the story that he told, the actors were very much in tune with the rhythms of musicality of the oh, language yeah. and um, and still maintain the physicality. It's the, the primary difference between theater and film is often the energy in the room. Like that's why I love live theater. That's what I miss, um, what I've missed over the past year. And somehow I still felt that energy 
coming off of the screen. And that that in itself mm. was um, not necessarily su surprising, but very, very much appreciated. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. Well, I done learned that. And they're going to treat me the way I want to be treated, no matter how much it hurt them. They're back there right now calling me all kinds of names, calling me everything but a child of God. But they can't do nothing else because they ain't got what they wanted yet. As soon as they get my voice down on one of them recording machines, then it's just like I be some whore and they roll over and put their pants on. They ain't got no use for me then. I know what I'm talking about. You watch. And Irvin, he right there with the rest of them. He don't care nothing about me either. He been my manager for six years and the only time he had me over his house was to sing for some of his white friends. Huh. I know how they do. Yeah, shit, you colored and you can make them some money, then you all right with them. Otherwise, you just a dog in the alley. Could have made them more money for my records and all them other recording artists they got put together, and then they want to talk about how much this session is costing them. I can't see how it's costing as much as they say. Shit, it ain't. I don't pay that kind of talk no mind. Yeah, I could say that um, really Chad Bozeman's performance, given his health conditions, is something that August Wilson himself would have related to. You know, August, when he did his last play, uh, Radio Golf, was dying of cancer at the time. He rejected treatment for pain and other things because that would have, have uh, degraded his ability to, to write. And so he just endured the pain and put out his last um, play, uh, a, a huge success. And so I thought Bozeman's performance was kind of in the spirit of what Wilson would have related to. Wilson always considered himself a, a warrior. That was one of his main identity traits and something I'm stressing in, in this biography of him I'm doing. And the warrior is someone who persists despite any obstacles, um, any setbacks, he just sucks it up and goes on, goes forward. And uh, Bozeman certainly did that, and, and Wilson personally did that as well. So that was one of the things that most, uh, most struck me. I would say I, I loved the, the movie. I thought it was, it was really excellent. It's the sort of thing that it makes you nervous um, when you're a, a student of, of Wilson because his plays do not easily translate into film because it's the dialogue in the plays that is really the heart of it. He considered himself a poet. He was a poet before he was a playwright. And really his poetry then went into, his, into the dialogue of his plays. So it's the, it's the dialogue, it's the conversations that is really the heart of what Wilson does. And that is hard to get into film. Yeah. But I thought they did an excellent job 
of, of doing that. Well, I think a lot of times it's hard for it to get into film because maybe a lot of uh, filmmakers aren't from theater, but goodness gracious, George C. Wolf is certainly, the director is certainly from theater. So is Ruben Santiago Hudson. So is Denzel Washington. And I think that you could tell because those scenes were so elongated compared to what you would normally see in a film. There were not quick cuts. They were allowed, those arias were allowed to be sung by you know all the different characters have almost all of them have those speeches that were not chopped up and cross cut or have flashbacks to Levy's mother's rape or you know the, the, it was just the words were allowed to paint the pictures which I think was so so important but as we talk through the movie please um, Monica and Larry let us know what is the, what are major differences that did happen in the film because I have not I did not go back and read the script so you guys are going to know be much more on it than I do. But let's talk about just real quickly about um, the performances of Viola and Chadwick. Uh, they had been in a movie before um, when he did the biopic of James Brown and they had a very short scene where she comes in as his mother and they have a scene about that. But boy, this was a whole different kind of relationship. And I just want to talk about Viola Davis, how she she gained weight, you know, which is always going to change your performance because it's going to throw off your center of gravity. It's going to do things to your voice. It's going to make you sweat more. And then, of course, she was wearing a prosthetic garment that made her heavier and how you know she rehearsed with it and wore it all the time and, and got it in her bones but the way that she moved her gestures you know I've been watching her for a very long time I've never seen her have the kind of articulation in her joints as she did in this movie and I just loved it just and everything she was doing with her neck she did a lot of really interesting things just physically and the same thing with Bozeman I mean he had this wiry energy and the way that he walked and he kind of hunched his shoulders forward and his feet were so light and just I just love that physical work and it, and it shows you kind of the skill of the director that you caught that that you could see that because a lot of times in films you don't even see the actor's feet you know, they're kind of acting just from the waist up. Um, so I just thought that that was just those were stunning choices and creations of the actor. Bye-bye. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, it's and for me, I always there's there's always like I'm always grabbing things from and it's not an apples to apples comparison that I but like things that remind me in, and with Viola Davis's performance, I could not shake this notion of Lear like that character as Lear and Matt. I mean, like you look at her eyes and she, there's just this madness, right? I mean, it's like with the, with the heavy, heavy set makeup, right? And the, it, for whatever reason, like that's what I like equated with that performance, which is again, not apples to apples. And then, you know, I, I, you know, I kind of went back and I looked at the original casting for Levy and it's Charles S. Dutton, right? Who is physically so different. Right. I mean, it, it reminded me of like, um, and again, not apples to apples, but I remember watching the the CBS version of Death of a Salesman that came out in the mid 80s with Dustin Hoffman as Willie. And that was my that was the version of Willie Loman that like I took as my own. And then to re to realize like Lee J. Cobb, who is a much bigger, more robust man playing that character, who was how Arthur Miller saw him. You know what I mean? Like. To me, it was the same kind of experience. Like, like Chadwick is going to be that character, 
like in my mind, like the wiry kind of intensity, the electricity, right? I can't even imagine Charles S. Dutton as like robust as he is, like playing that role when Chadwick is really so spry and so like lightning fast. I think of the knife, right? And that's to me, like his physicality just encapsulates everything about that character in such a really profound way. And again, like in this movie, it, it does remind me of Death of a Salesman. It's like the, the the CBS production, the TV production, where it's taking all the positive and great aspects of theater and putting it on film. They're not trying to like make this a movie in the world. They're like keeping it in a self-contained space like like theater does. And I think that that's what makes the thing sing like it. And I think we talked about that, Laura. That's what makes it sing for me. Let's now take a listen to the man highly responsible for bringing this amazing film to the screen, which is Denzel Washington as the producer of this. And this is him talking about uh, Chad and his relationship with him. Chadwick Boseman's final movie, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, will be released on Netflix on Friday. Denzel Washington produced the film in the 1990s. Denzel actually donated money to Howard University so theater students could take a prestigious summer course. It ends up that one of those students was Chadwick. Yeah, now with Chadwick's passing, Denzel told CBS Sunday morning that Chadwick gave us everything he had. You helped pay for his schooling, part of it. And, and he said that there wouldn't have been a Black Panther if it wasn't for Denzel Washington. There are always those that came before. There wouldn't be a Denzel without a Sydney, or a Sydney without a James Edwards, or James Edwards without a whoever the, the guy was back then. It's our job to pass the baton and share what we know. And it's my job. That's the way I look at it. Can't take it with you. So all you can do is leave it here. Y'all back up and leave, let me alone. Oh, come on. Let it's fascinating that nobody fun. knew that he Well, credit did. to him. You know, he kept it to himself. It was nobody's business. He was there to deliver, and he delivered. And you don't need nobody messing with him about the wife. Certain members of his team knew. His wife was there, or they weren't even married yet. I used to watch how she took care of him. And I actually said to him, I said, man, you need to put a ring on that finger because she kept her eye on him and she watched him. And I'm like, man, she loves that guy. You know, but I didn't know what we know now. We now know it would be his final film. Chadwick Boseman passed away August 28th at the age of 43. I mean, he's so young, so talented. How do you wrap your mind around that? He did all he could do with what he was given. And he left it here for us to enjoy. Chad will live forever, period. I found the difference between the film and the play quite, quite striking in that the play, the focus is really on the musicians. And Ma is sort of a side character in that. She doesn't have the importance and the role and the presence that she did in the film. So in some ways, I thought the film made it more, uh, to me, it was more interesting because Ma really took on a stronger persona, a stronger role in the, in, in the entire production than she has in the, in the plays, in the theater. Um, and a lot of that's due to Viola Davis. It took someone with her power to carry that off because there's not 
that much uh, script for um, for Ma as there is for the musicians, for Levy and the others, because of the Wilson's emphasis. But I thought they did a beautiful job of bringing Ma's story more to the fore than than even in the play. Monica? Yeah, I agree. I think I want to go back to something you said a while ago, Lisa, about um, the experience of the writer and director in the theater. And I want to point out that all of those principal actors that we're talking about also come from the theater. And all of them have a background in performing August Wilson. And so, um, you know, Brian, you had mentioned before you made this Lear comparison between, um, you know, King Lear and Ma Rainey which I, I think is an interesting um, comparison because I, I watched the film again today in, you know, in preparation for this conversation. And I just thought, you know, August Wilson writes these great American tragedies. You know, um, when you, the feeling that you're left with at the end where, um, again, it's almost like he's not arguing for any particular point of view in this play, he's laying out two very distinct perspectives. Ma Rainey's perspective on how she wants to move through the world and Levy's perspective on how he wants to move through the world. Both have dire consequences, right? And so, um, and that's what, what you really get the sense from Viola Davis's performance in that, that there are two scenes in particular that I'll point to. There's the one in which, um, is it? Um, yeah, Irvin comes to tell her that they're not gonna, they're gonna give Sylvester $25 of her money, you know, instead of just paying him. And when she tells him that's not actually how it's gonna go and you need to go back, you know, to start event and, and get it straightened out. It's not even so much of what she says, you know, it's that expression on her. There's a whole scene that plays out on her face in that moment. And you can feel like the the gravity of what has happened, you know, over the course of the day. And then you see it again when she's in the car and they're driving away in that last scene where it's really starting to settle in on, on her. Like, you know, what happened, where she's headed, you know, what happens next. And you can feel the intensity of it, but somehow somehow you still feel that she has power, even though, you know, at this point in her career, that, you know, this is, I think one of the last albums she's recorded, she records and, you know, she career kind of goes downhill from, from this point, you know, in the actual, um, in her actual life. Well, I think Viola Davis is, and, and Larry, you mentioned this about the warrior aspect of these characters. And that's kind of what Davis is getting into. You get the sense of the wars she's fought you know, by this performance, the weariness, the worldliness, even when she's going through the hotel, the quote unquote black hotel, and she's looking at all these people going, yeah, go ahead and stare at me. I don't care. I don't care what you think. I'm proud of myself. And that's like, like a battle scar that she has that she carries through the whole movie that I really love. And I've seen her play battle scarred characters before, but this had a whole other literally weight to it that I really, really admired. Um, 
I want to just go back to the very first scene of the movie. It was it's a small moment, but it's something I was just fascinated how the movie. By the way, this is a simple. This this movie is very simple, right? A a the mama of the the mother of the blues, Ma Rainey, goes from the south to the north to record some songs. That's basically the plot, right? Yet there's so much tension. There's so much tragedy. And there's so much climax is sort of incredible on this sort of very simple, simple story. But the very beginning of the film, you see the woods. You know, you see it's at night. It's the woods. There's moonlight. There's a little bit of fog. And you see two men, two black men running through the woods. And for me, that just pinged me like, oh, fuck. What's going to happen to these guys? What? Who's chasing them? What are they? You know, I felt fear in the beginning, but they're not running from anybody. They're running to something. They're excited when you re- you reveal that they're running to this sort of juke joint tent uh, experience. So what? What am I afraid? What am I tapping into? What are they saying in that first scene there? I think what what came to me when I watched that is it actually, it made me think about how very often, and I think because of the history of black people and people who do not consider themselves white have to cross over to a predominantly white audience, that whenever you have a story about black people, that there's always this, there's so much focus on the conflict between black people and white people. This need to bring white people into the story you know, and, and to have a, a central role. I feel like when Ruben Santiago Hudson and George C. Wolfe decided to open the scene in this way, what it does is highlights the fact that we have private spaces occupied by Black people where Black people simply enjoy one another, irrespective of what white people are doing. And that is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And so historically in film, when you see that scene, then yes, you, there's something, you know, terrible about to happen. And, you know, there's some sort of confrontation or some form of violence or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. But I think what they do is a very clever reversal, which is something that, um, you know, my Rainey keeps mentioning. I don't need this. I can go back to my tour and back to my people. I don't need this. Mm-hmm. And opening in that way just really helped I think draw people in because they're expecting that violence. But then what they get is this, this you know, beautiful scene of Black people enjoying one another and, and enjoying the music. Larry? Yes, I, th- I think it also reflects, uh, I, I agree with uh, what Monica says, it, it reflects Wilson's basic philosophy. Uh, this, this would come out of his nationalist um, orientation, Black nationalist orientation. His plays are very seldom have any white characters whatsoever. They don't attack whites in most of the plays. Whites are just at the periphery of the, of the scenes. They're seldom at the center. Um, in this case, probably more than in, in most of his other plays. But generally, that's, a, that's very much a trademark Wilson, Wilson approach to theater and to black, and to black life that, that really is quite unusual and, and quite powerful. Mm. Bye-bye. I was struck by, by that scene. And I, you know, I, for a time I did some, I was doing research for a time on the Negro baseball league. And one thing I was struck by, and I could have this completely wrong, but like the, the coexistence of the sacred and the profane, right? Like the juke joint and 
the church, like that they coexisted, right? And so my first thought, like seeing this tent revival and having grown up in Texas in kind of the evangelical community, having been to a tent revival, it had that feel of here's a tent revival. And yet we have Ma Rainey like singing Black Bottoms and, and everybody's like, like enjoying it, but it's like, it's scandalous, right? It's just like, oh, I, you know, everybody's in, like, they're kind of like, oh, you know, there are people in the crowd. And so to me, that I, I thought that in such a simple way, this like two minute thing, it's like it brought those kind of images, those icon, iconography kind of together. That was just my, that was just kind of my impression of that, that scene. And it's, it, it does, it evokes both. Right. Which is great. So simple. So simple a choice. I want to talk about an actor who's in this that I think is a national treasure. And I can't believe that he has not been nominated for an Oscar. And Brian knows who I'm going to say. Uh, and so does Dean. Glenn Turman, who I had the pleasure of casting in a heart-wrenching episode of Criminal Minds. But Glenn Turman, who plays Toledo the piano player who's, you know, and, and I love Coleman Domingo too. I mean, his, oh my God, his grace and his, he's just trying to keep everybody calm. He's just trying to like get through the day, just trying to, you know, get everybody paid, get everything done. And, you know, Toledo, what did you think of those characters? What, what did those mean in Wilson's world? Well, I thought one thing about the characters, they're blues performers. All of his musicians are, are, are out of the blues tradition. The irony is Pittsburgh was not a blues city. Pittsburgh was a jazz city. Had very few blues performers. Um, August learned about um, Ma Rainey. She came to Pittsburgh once in 1924 at a performance that uh, a guy who owned a Pope, who owned a, a bar a restaurant that August used to frequent, uh, told August about going to see her back in 1924 when she came to Pittsburgh. But she was one of the very few blues singers who came to town. And Pittsburgh did not have much of a blues tradition. It was, it was a jazz thing. But Wil Wilson was interested in the blues because the blues has words. And he was interested in words as a playwright, as a poet and a playwright, whereas jazz is often instrumental. So he had this strong orientation toward toward the blues, brings it in um, as ways of dramatizing the sorts of themes that he wants to put in the, in the play itself. And so I thought it was very, very useful, very interesting that he focused on the blues in this regard. I wanted to mention one other thing about the absence of whites in most of his plays. Whites are a more important presence in Ma Rainey than in most of his other plays. The curious thing about this is that Wilson grew up biracial, white father, black mother, in an integrated, multiracial, uh, multi-ethnic neighborhood. So he was thoroughly familiar with white people, with white life. Um, he had a very congenial childhood in his, uh, in his neighborhood with, with both whites and blacks. But you get none of this in his, in his theater. And this is, to me, remains one of the big mysteries of, of Wilson. Monica, is it a mystery to you? Do you, or what are your feelings about that? I mean, not so much in just in thinking about um, the ways in which he wrote, where he would go and sit in diners and, um, you know, and, and listen to people 
speak. And I think part of what he was trying to do was not so much just reflect his own experience, but to reflect the experience of those in the community. And so um, I think in many ways what he was doing is capturing some of those stories that he heard, you know, bits and pieces of, you know, different folks talking about what they had gone through or how they had experienced, um, you know, the institutionalized racism, um, love, um, death, life, you know, these various things. And I, I feel like he was more, um, yeah, I feel like that's what he was really tapping into, trying to tell the story of a people as opposed to the story of himself as a person. Mm-hmm. I think he does that more in how I learned what I learned when he begins to tell his own uh, oh, story about his experiences. I have a quick question. It's not about Ma Rainey specifically, but did did Mr. Wilson like make a conscious choice not to have his plays made into film? I know like the piano lesson was uh, dramatized in 1995, which was before his death. I believe, but that's the only one I think. And so now we've got fences, we've got Ma Rainey's. I mean, did he make a conscious choice while he was living that he was not going to have his plays? No, he was very interested in having his plays made into film. Um, That was his, one of his goals from the very beginning because his friend Claude Purdy, that was Claude Purdy's dream to, uh, to make these into, into movies. But uh, they were going to do a movie of, um, of fences, but Wilson insisted that they have a black director for it, and that was the stumbling point. Um, Hollywood wasn't ready to go that go that far that yeah. fast. Whereas uh, Hallmark for um, piano lesson, Hallmark was willing to have a um, have black director, and uh, Wilson actively participated in making that uh, that film. And Denzel Washington is really spearheading like these productions now that are that are moving into film am i right about i mean i know he produced both these these recent adaptations yeah i think he is committed to to um you know adapting the cycle so so yeah um i want to pivot to two things i want to talk about um wardrobe and i want to talk about wallpaper because these are my two favorite things to talk about but uh you know when i was an actor uh Brian and I were both actors and uh I re- when I was an actor I could not really nail my character until the wardrobe lady brought me my shoes and then it's like all right I can do this and I do not think you can do this play without this wardrobe because there's something about you know a man having a shirt and a vest and a jacket and a hat and the way that Coleman wears his hat is so different from the way Glenn wears his hat kind of, you know, jauntily to the side. And then Michael Coleman, my brother moves on from the wire. He wears it with the brim turned up and, and the hard soled shoes. And, and we know that literally shoes is a, is a big Chekhov's gun in this, uh, in this movie, you know, literally the hard soled shoes make you walk different, make you, um, you hear yourself 
when you're in a room. Um, any? Do you guys have any feelings about the wardrobe and just the way, you know, even Glenn would use his little handkerchief to like mop his face and all the little things that come from wearing this wardrobe um, adds to this luscious behavior uh, of the film. And I would say August was always interested in dress and appearance. Um, his childhood hero, really his role model and, um, and substitute father, let's say, was Charlie Burley, the legendary prize fighter. And Wilson, as a boy, said, oh, he can remember Charlie would come up the street and he had his hat on just so. He had his jacket just so. He had his shoes he was looking good <laughs> and people, his fans would just be cheering and, and, and calling out his name. And it, August very much admired that, um, that, uh, that awareness of, of dress and how it creates a certain presence. Um, he didn't wear hats quite like that, but he, he did wear hats. He, he did, often wore yeah. a, a British, British, uh, whatever you call those, uh, caps, those kind of golf cap types of things in imitation of um of uh who was the welsh poet dylan dylan, dylan thomas dylan, dylan thomas, thomas. Uh, oh, yeah, dylan. out of nowhere whoa dylan yeah. um well this is the second time this is the second time that boxing has been mentioned and i'm so glad it has because i was uh watching george will talk about the set and that's a, and i can't believe it it's that was a found set that room which blew my mind i thoroughly thought that they built that set the musician's room where they were you know rehearsing and having all those really heavy scenes and of course poor toledo's death scene but they actually made made these posts the only thing that they installed were these posts in that room to make it look like a boxing ring and you really do get and there's some camera work that i feel like was straight out of hbo sports like circling these fighters in the ring and watching them go at each other as as you know, everybody, of course, is bouncing off of Levy, um, but each one is a fighter who has their time in the ring as they each have their monologues and their stories. Um, so it's funny. I, I, it felt it feels like he's Wilson is writing towards that energy. You know, wow, I, that is terrific. I hadn't noticed that. But Wilson was very much interested in prize fighting. Mm -hmm. He was uh, he was a fighter. He loved he had a. Um, um, in his, in his study, he had facilities there to practice to a punching bag <sighs> that he would, that he would use. Um, he kept up with the fighting, uh, world ever since the time of Charlie Burley, he was totally sold on the importance of fighting as a, as a metaphor for life as well. As somebody who takes a punch, doesn't go down, comes back, stays tough. And, uh, he infused that in his, in his characters. Yeah, actually I want to make a point about the wardrobe um, and uh, before coming back to this, but I just wanted to acknowledge Constanza Romero, August Wilson's widow, um, who manages the August Wilson estate. And um, she actually gave a presentation at the International Black Theater Summit a few years ago where she talked about, uh, because she's a costume designer, and she talked about how Wilson and she interacted in terms of the, the designing of the costumes and how that also went along with the writing process. So the connections that you're noticing between like what they're wearing and the characters, you know, as an actor, I'm very similar to you, Lisa. I also, I need my shoes first, um, first and foremost. And um, 
And one of the things I noticed, I, I think it was in that final scene again where you see um, Ma Rainey in the car and they're driving away. Now here she's been in that studio all day, sweating like it's crazy. Know, and I as soon as she too. gets in the car, she wraps this fur around her neck. I noticed the same thing. But it's yes. a status symbol, right? It's a status symbol. So regardless of how hot it is, she's going to wear it. And I think that's um, something you see throughout all of mm. Wilson's plays. The costumes always matter because it's so so much a part of the culture as well. It's it's really articulating key things about the that's culture amazing. in every that's era amazing. that gets represented. Yeah, right. Going back going back to the the kind of boxing illustration that you know I think about like the the film adaptation of Glengarry Glen Ross and the scene between Moss and Arano in the donut shop. You know, and the the director made a conscious decision to like go back and forth, right? And 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 Mamet is so like ba 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 ba. They're going back and forth like a tennis match. So it's just like screen switch, 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 and it becomes very distracting. And the thing about this that's mm-hmm. so great, and again, it's the, yeah. the boxing mm-hmm. illustration, right? The camera moving, moving always. You know what I mean? Like exactly like circling the ring and everybody kind of coming into the center and then going back to their corners. I mean, it's like. It's it's dynamite, and you don't you don't have to look ping pong back and forth like with dialogue. You're you're moving along with the camera, and it's like fluid. You know what I mean? It's just it's it's really it's a like dance. A remarkable, yeah, absolutely. It's a remarkable piece of of filmmaking without sacrificing the the joy and what made it such a phenomenal play and a, a piece of theater. I wanted to switch for a second to what it costs actors to be in a piece like this. Um, you know, I've been watching interviews with Coleman and, and Viola and Glenn and, and Michael Potts about, you know, what it's like to do material like this. And especially some of those monologues are just gut ripping, you know, and it, it's gut ripping for any actor to have to to do a traumatic monologue and, and um, you know, I've had to do monologues that are about, you know, whatever sexual violence or something like that, that, that pings me and hits me where it hurts. But I can't imagine how difficult it is to be in a play with such suffering, such, such memories of suffering. You know, the story about that Cutler says about the priest, uh, you know, being abandoned on the railroad. And, and then of course, Levy's, story about his mother and and everybody's suffering. I mean, can you speak to that at all about what that does, the the trauma that that is for an actor? So in some of, I'm actually working on a project right now that actually deals with that, um, the different experiences that black actors in particular have had Um, in performing particular types of roles and how they've actually had to develop their own methods for how they approach these types of performances or performance in general. And so um, there are people like uh, Dr. Barbara Ann Teer who back in the 1960s even noted the problems with method acting, for example, which um, is a form of Stanislavski-based training that was popularized by Lee Strasberg that they use at the Actors yeah, Studio. Yeah, I, I taught for the Actors Studio. I'm very well aware of it. Yeah, yeah. 
I know you are, but just yeah, in yeah, case yeah, you... yeah, yeah. But with that method, and you know, popular audiences hear about it. You know how an actor will lose all this weight, or they will go and live in certain conditions in order to be able to relate to the character. Um, but you, when you think about what that can do to black people who historically have been cast in, you know, stereotypical roles or roles that are really sort of steeped in trauma. The problem is most apparent when it's a role that hasn't been written well. Um, I think what happens in Wilson's work, because he writes these full characters that actually have an arc. And I also believe that um, these particular actors in particular have had enough experience with the work and um, some have had the opportunity, uh, for example, to work with Lloyd Richards and folks who, um, who really understood this type of work. And so I think they were, they were able to manage this. I know Coleman Domingo gave an interview and was talking about um, how he had to kind of work with, or, you know, he spent time with Chadwick performing that, you know, gut-wrenching monologue because because Chadwick had actually broken down in the middle of that. And the way Coleman describes what happened with that is really, I think, what's necessary is you need community. You need people to be able to hold you um, in those moments when you go there and you have these top-notch actors who are not afraid to go there. The problem is, how do you get back, right? And they're able to get back because they're holding one another. And that's the power of an ensemble that's been, you know, um, put together in this way. And then also the power of a director like George C. Wolfe and a writer like Ruben Santiago Hudson, who, you know, understands what the content of the material is and what's necessary to take care of the actors in performing that material. And that's not always the case in Hollywood productions. No. Real quick, so I was when I was in my early twenties and I lived in Houston. I was really lucky to get to work um, with the ensemble theater with yep. Eileen Morris, and and she was she was still married to Alex, and so they like my first play that I did with them was Pearly Victorious, yeah. and then the next play, right, exactly, and then like the next play that it was like their commemorative season, and like the next play we did was Soldiers Play, right. And so this is the, speaking of community, like soldiers play is really, really tough. It's really tough. And so we had that community and these older guys who were established Hollywood, not Hollywood, Houston actors, like they would tour all the time. That's what they did. They made their living as actors. Like they took me under their wing and accepted me in a way like that I just feel incredibly blessed to have experienced. But we also had the broader community coming to see the show. Like there was, there was never a night where we were less than 75% capacity. So it was not just telling this really tough story together as a community of men. They were more men than I was certainly because I was so young, but then also the broader community coming to, to hear the story being told and to kind of celebrate the talent that was there and available. I, I think that that's something that, that film can never capture, even if you're in a packed movie theater, it just can't. The communal experience of being together, you know what I mean? And the, the pride that 
the audience had in the ensemble theater. I mean, it was such a remarkable institution. You know what I mean? And it's and I think that's something too to have that as well, which was fantastic. And it's still a remarkable institution. Eileen Morris is still there doing fantastic work. I know. <laughs> I know. I she. I mean, it's it really it like it. It those two experiences were like my my favorite experiences working in theater because. And listen, you know, doing soldier like we did everything. We misbehaved terribly. <laughs> like people bring, okay, I'm going to tell tales out of turn. So like, you know, like backstage, like, you know, guys are bringing in, you know, gin or <laughs> beer or whatever, like intermission, they'd go off by themselves and then come back. And I mean, but everybody trusted each other. And that was the, the year that the Houston Rockets won their yeah. first championship. So we were watching television in the, I mean, it was just, I, it was just a theater as a place yeah. of joy is that's what I think of. And so that made telling that story, that particular story mm-hmm. made it a little bit mm-hmm. easier because we were all kind of in it together. And I think that that's, that's a, that is a tremendous strength of mm-hmm. the black theater community nationally. And then also regionally mm-hmm. for sure. Well, let's turn to the end of the of the of the play as we sort of wrap up the end of the movie as we sort of wrap up. So I never read this this play or, or anything. I didn't know what happened at the end, but I knew somebody's going to die. <laughs> I just knew it. There's just nobody is getting out of that freaking room alive. Something has to happen. And I'm waiting and waiting for it. And as the musicians are packing up and it's like, oh, they're just about to get paid. Everybody's just about to you know get out of there and move on. But. I could feel it. I could feel the wind up to something happening. So why does Levy kill poor Toledo? Why does that have to happen? Again, when I was watching it today and the words that came to mind when I was watching um, all the performances, but particularly Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman, I call it um, eloquent rage is what you see beneath the surface of, and it's there the entire time, but there's so many other things playing like on the, the, the top layer. And then every so often it dips into that and you can see the rage coming. In that moment, and it's what happens a lot in life, you know, hurt people hurt other people and they often hurt the people that are closest to them. And so Levy's rage was not at Toledo, but Toledo was whom, who he had access to to express that rage. And it happens, it's a very human reaction. Like we see it happen frequently just in life. And I think the way it's expressed here and, and the way Chadwick played that moment, the way, the way Glenn Terman played that moment, the way all of them did, it was just, it was insane. But I feel like they captured it. Like in the moment that it happens, you don't even think about why did he do that? You know exactly why he did it. Even Toledo knows why he did it. They all do, which is why each one of them begins to turn around because they they knew it was coming. And I think each one of them, especially um, Cutler, is trying to stop it or slow it down at least. And um, and that's the sad part of it. But I think that's what really taps into it. That's what makes it such a powerful story 
because it's recognizable. We see it happen often. Let's take a short listen to this interview with Viola Davis talking about Chad Bozeman's performance on 60 Minutes. You ain't had nothing to say except, yes, sir. <laughs> Just because I say yes, sir, don't mean I spooked up by him. I know what I'm doing. Let me handle it my way. Well, go ahead. This marks Chadwick Bozeman's last role before he passed. Looking back now, how do you reflect on his performance as Levy? First of all, it's an extraordinary performance with an extraordinary role. I, I think it's the greatest role for a young African man in ever, only because it's a character that comes full circle. The role of Levy, the, the trumpet. The role of Levy in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Levy got to be Levy. You don't need nobody messing with him about the white. Someone reconciling their dreams, but then running from a traumatic past that ultimately swallows him. I think that when people watch it, because people look, are going to look at his life backwards because we know the end now, which was his death. I think that they probably will see metaphors in it that didn't exist when we were watching it. We were just watching a great artist absolutely give himself over to a role, which is what you do. You give yourself, you sacrifice yourself. You, you, you come onto the soundstage, you say, bye Chadwick, I'll see you later. I'll have dinner with you tonight. Come on, Levy. And then, but that's really hard that's to do like, because to sub out like Chadwick or Viola, they're always scratching at the door saying, wait a minute, you can't leave me behind. But you got to leave yourself behind. You give yourself over. You sacrifice. How do you do that's that? That's what I saw. How do you do that as, as a performer? Well, we don't have enough time so that I could tell you how to do that. But I'll tell you the one thing you have to do. You have to be courageous enough to leave your vanity at the door. That's really hard for people to do. But that's what I saw in Chadwick. That's what I've always seen in Chadwick, an artist, not an, just an actor or entertainer, an artist. How is he an artist as opposed to just an entertainer? An entertainer just wants to give you what you want and make money. An entertainer walks in the room and they know their power. They want everyone to know that they're number one on the call sheet. They have to make sure that that trailer is right. They have to make sure their lunch gets delivered on time. That's an entertainer. An actor foregoes all of that. An actor, it's about literally servicing the writer and the role. An artist has a lot of that imposter syndrome. That feeling like, oh my God, am I gonna be able to do it? Am I gonna be able to do it? And they should have those feelings because it's a huge leap because you know the road, you know what the process is. And also, an artist, like I, I've said in the past, is an observer and a thief. An artist observes life. They take everything in, you know, um, and they, they saturate it. And then they hold it like they have a whole lexicon of all this stuff that they've observed. Then when a character comes along, they use it as arsenal. An entertainer, they copy actors. They copy trends. They copy zeitgeist. An artist is someone who's just committed to the craft of acting. The whole craft, even separate from how people are going to respond to it. 
And I think Glenn choosing to die with his eyes open. Let me tell you, that's a really hard thing to do <laughs> to, on a technical level. Um, that was such a strong, devastating choice to keep his eyes open, staring up in shock and wonder of his death. Um, oof, that that was that was really rough. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna say it's in the text. Yeah. It's in the text. It's in the text. And Wally Jamal, an, an actor yeah. here in Pittsburgh who's done all of Wilson's plays and was a friend of August Wilson, said that when he played that part, Wilson had told him to keep your eyes open. And so he fell and he kept his eyes open. And he said there was dust floating around. There was everything. And the scene went on and on. And he said, I didn't blink. And I could see out of the corner of my eye, Wilson was looking at me in total astonishment, like, oh, my God, go ahead. It's okay. You can blink. He said, I was, I was going to show him. I was not going to blink. He said that <laughs> dust was falling in my eyes, and I didn't blink a bit. And when it was over, Wilson came up to him and said, Ben, I don't know how you did that. You didn't have to do that. Yeah, that, was, that was, I'm sorry. I, I went, you know, it was kind of apologetic. Well, he said, I had his number then. He, he told me, don't blink. And he said, okay, I'm going to show you something. Lisa, did you notice, uh, just speaking of, um, of Glenn, uh, the, when Levy makes that you know, incredible um, monologue about his, about his mum and his dad, let's not forget, of course, that um, that's part of his tragedy. That, and, and Brian, you're right. This is, you know, it's, it's, this is not a musical. People looking in the trailer might think it's a musical. It's not, of course, is it? It just happens to be about musicians, but it's a drama and it's certainly a tragedy. But he and to, um, Toledo's uh, character uh, had been sort of dueling, and Toledo had been quite dismissive of him throughout. Yet when he tells that story, there's this one shot where the camera is positioned to the right of um, Glenn's face, but you can see the other musicians in the background, and he has just a single tear just rolling down of his cheek. And it's only about a two-second shot but it's just so powerful, and then it makes what happens later even more so. And of course, his rage, I think, is also partly what triggers him to that. It's it's the scene um, right after Sturdivant, you know, this is him about his songs, and you know, pokes the five dollars in his pocket, and you know, virtually pats him on the head and says, you know, now go off and run away and be a good boy. And I think he realizes that. You know, he this, when he tells that story about his dad, he's so proud that he took his dad's message away about when his dad sold the farm. He smiled at that guy's face. He took the money, and he planned his revenge. And he that was sort of the route he seemed to be taking with his efforts to uh, you know change the music. It's like, yep, you know, be uh, say the right things, but you know, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. And then I think he has that a moment of realization where he's maybe. I don't know. It just looked like he realized, oh, my God, this is not going to change. And I I wondered what the significance was. It seemed to be a parable for his life. But he's been when he, he tr he's been trying to break that door down the whole film. And then he finally gets in there and it's just a dead end. It's just nothing there. It's just a walled off box. And I'm I'm going... I don't quite know what that is, but maybe is it's that in the play, guys? A, is that in the play? I don't think he ever actually breaks through the door in the in the play. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, in the stage version, he doesn't break through, but they they, they chose to break through, and then there's that top-down shot where you can see 
he's in almost like a prison cell. It's just a small four-walled thing. And I was like, hmm, okay, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, and he tried to, you know, he was, I also had the sense that Mar also knew that what Levy was saying about the music was right, that her time was sort of coming to an end and the things that he wanted to do were the right thing to do. And he knew it and she knew it too, but she couldn't be at this stage anything but what she was. And so there was that sort of sense of impending doom that I just sort of had about that whole aspect of it, but just brilliant. Yeah, I was just going to add with the um, the him breaking into the walled-in room is really reflective of what Black experience, Black Americans have experienced throughout the history of the United States of um, every time you think there's a, a breakthrough or some sort of um, some sort of progress or even access to opportunity, then there's always some other barrier that I won't say magically appears, but there's always some other barrier that has to be um, encountered. And so I think that was really reflective of that. And um, the other thing I was just going to say, the thought that I was left with in the end, and I agree with you, Dean, I believe she knew that he was correct with a lot of what he was saying. And I just thought to myself how much more powerful they would have been had they worked together, you know, to change the the sound. But she couldn't give up the power, could she? Because it's, you know, she didn't want to because it was all really all that she had. You know, she occasionally throughout the film, it's like it's like when you said, Lisa, that scene where I think it was you um, when they wanted to take the twenty five dollars out of her pocket. And then there's just this flash of, of two seconds of incandescent rage, you know, and Sturdivant goes scurrying back off to Irvin to tell him no, that shit's not going to fly. She has to or not. She has to. But she just can. She only needs to display that every once in a while, a little bit of attitude here and there, and it's got to where she is. So to cede power to this young kid, it's just not in her nature. We've spoken about other films, Lisa, and particularly um, in, in the crime area where this, when you, when you, well, two things. So one, Lisa, you spoke uh, last time about that when you were watching uh, Frances McDormand in Mississippi Burning in the scene where she says, you know, about uh, racism, and then you marry it, and you said, bing, there's the Academy Award. Well, of course, the you know, I felt the same. You keep planting these ideas in my head, Lisa. You're teaching me about film, because when I was watching then his monologue, I'm like, bing, that's the Academy Award right there. But what is he in reality? He is still, I mean, he's telling a story about his mother being gang-raped, and then his father murdering some of them but eventually being caught and you know and murdered himself and so he is an incredibly damaged human being and he's just covering it up with the his perkiness and his go-getter and you know let's move forward and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that but it's still inside he's a incredibly incredibly and understandably damaged little boy inside and so you're right monica i agree 100 percent. well i just thought that um that Ma comes across as a very strong, controlled woman. And I, August takes a lot of heat for some reason from women for not being, I don't know, as true to them as he should be or something. And my sense is that, I get, maybe this is just my old silly male perspective, but I think 
uh, he has a string of very strong, fleshed out women. And I just don't know where he gets this, this reputation um, for it. And I, I think Ma is a, is a perfect example of this. Now, in the play, she doesn't get as much play. Uh, she doesn't get, get as much attention as she does in the, in, the, in the film. But it's there. It's there. She is a strong woman in the play. She just doesn't have well, as much Well, and certainly time. Violet won her last Oscar for Fences, so he must be doing something right. But, but, she stole <laughs> yeah, the show, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything else, Monica, Dean, Brian? I think just in response to um, what Dr. Glasgow just observed about the criticism of August Wilson, I think part of it is due to the fact that his plays are male-heavy. So it's predominantly male cast. There are some plays that will only have one, maybe two women. Um, and so the stories tend to center around the men. Um, but I do think he's written some really powerful material for, um, for women in spite of that. The other thing I just wanted to say um, is just acknowledge, I wouldn't necessarily call Levy a damaged human being. Like I didn't want to end it on that note because I don't think he's damaged. I think he's a human being responding to the horrors of living in an American society that continues to perpetuate racism. Mm. Yeah, well said, well said. Well said, well said. I want to give a shout out to A.V. Kaufman, the casting director who put together this ensemble, um, although I'm sure that Denzel knew who he wanted to play, Ma Rainey. Um, uh, uh, no surprise there, but uh, what an amazing film. What a uniquely American film. And um, thank you all for joining us today to celebrate Mr. Wilson, to celebrate this amazing cast. And uh, let's, I don't even care who wins or who loses at the Oscars. Dean and Brian know that I don't give a, a you-know-what about the Oscars. <laughs> but it's so nice to be able to celebrate these performances and have you guys come on Killer Casting. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. For, yes. Do you guys have any books that you want? Do you have anything you want to promote while you're here? Any books, any articles, any appearances, any performances? You can say it now or we can put it in our show notes or, you know, give it a shout out. Well, Chris Rawson and I have a book called... Um, uh, August Wilson Pittsburgh places in his life and plays that really is a, it's a short book, but we put a lot of thought into it, a lot of energy into it. And it has a lot of good material on both Pittsburgh and on Wilson himself, because, you know, Pittsburgh is the setting for most of his plays and people are always wondering, well, what's in the play that's like Pittsburgh? How does Pittsburgh relate to what's in the place? And that was a, a real attempt to do that. So I just mentioned that it's not a new book, but it, it, People have found it very useful. Very cool. Okay, we will put that out on our website. Anything, Dr. Monica? So I have a book called Shaping the Future of African-American Film, Color-Coded Economics and the Story Behind the Numbers. It talks a bit about August Wilson as well as Black experience in the film industry, theater industry, and publishing. I also have the forthcoming book co-authored with Dr. Nicole Hodges-Persley called Breaking It Down, Audition techniques for actors of the global majority. All right. That's wow. amazing. Okay. Congratulations. Well, it was so great, professors, to have you here. My sexy beasts, Dean and Brian. So good to see you guys. Everybody stay safe. And this is Killer Casting signing off.
Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Audio engineering by Dean Laffin. Logo art by April Laffin. Website and Big Fat Opinions courtesy of me, Brian Allen Hill.
Thanks very much, guys. Terrific input. Thank you.